And this week, we'll be in Luke 10, looking at the parable of the Good Samaritan. If you've been in church a while, or maybe even if you haven't, you might know this parable. A guy gets mugged while on a trip and is left for dead on the side of a road. A priest and a Levite pass him by, but a Samaritan has compassion on him and helps him, bringing him to an inn to recover. It's a good parable, one of the more well-known ones and one of the more seemingly straightforward ones that Jesus tells, honestly. The moral of the story is explicit, so there's no spoiler alert needed. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love is the frame and the point of this story. There's plenty there and we'll get into it, but first we're gonna look at the circumstances of the parable, why Jesus tells it and who he tells it to. At this point in Luke, Jesus has just had an expansion of his ministry. He sent out 70 disciples in his name to the towns where he wanted to go, telling them to heal the sick, proclaim that the kingdom of God is near. They go and they return joyful with success, and Jesus rejoices with them, prays, and he blesses the original 12 disciples. And this is where our story today begins. Interestingly, with a challenge to Jesus in the midst of this success. There's a lawyer who has questions for this Jesus character. But before we get to the lawyer, let's pray. Jesus, if we believe you are who you say you are, then you are the cornerstone, the living word, the heartbeat of the scriptures. You are the one who proclaims salvation and declares redemption and makes it real. I ask that you would open our eyes and our ears to your word today. Open our hearts and let it change us. Guide us today and always, O Lord, amen. Our reading starts in Luke 10, verse 25. Just then, a lawyer stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said to him, what is written in the law? What do you read there? He answered, well, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. Jesus said to him, you have given the right answer. Do this and you will live. But wanting to justify himself, the lawyer asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, a man was going down to Jericho from Jerusalem and fell into the hands of robbers who stripped him beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that same road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, while traveling, came near him, and when he saw him, he was moved with pity. He went to him, bandaged his wounds, having poured oil and wine on them. Then he put him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. 
The next day he took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper and said, take care of him and when I come back I will repay you whatever more you spend. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The lawyer said, the one who showed him mercy. Jesus said to him, go and do likewise. This is the word of the Lord. I gotta say, there is a part of me that feels just a little bad for the lawyer. Like, I mean, he was trying to pick a fight, so he doesn't get a lot of my sympathy, but Jesus shuts him down, turns the table on him so confidently three times. And the lawyer's probably accustomed to debates and winning debates, and he doesn't win this one. The lawyer opens with a question intended to test Jesus. And it is a question that appears very simple, probably a question every Jewish man would know how to answer, certainly a question every rabbi, like Jesus, could easily answer. Maybe the lawyer doesn't think that Jesus is qualified. Maybe he's trying to sow distrust by leading him to say openly that the Jews needed to love their Roman oppressors or other Gentiles. Or maybe he expected Jesus to give a long, wordy explanation that he could then pick apart and criticize the semantics. That feels like a lawyerly thing to do. Maybe you know the type. (laughs) No offense to any lawyers here. But Jesus looks at him, just looks at him, and does not engage the debate, but turns the question around. What do you think? What do you read in the scriptures? The lawyer gives an answer. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and love the neighbor as yourself. These commandments come straight from Deuteronomy, where God makes the covenant with Israel, promising, I will be your God and you will be my people. The 10 commandments really boil down to these two. The first four are about loving God and the final six are about loving one's neighbor. And it's worth saying two things here. First, loving one's neighbor is part of loving God, which is why the greatest commandment is to love God. And second, this is covenantal love. It's not talking about personal emotion. These commandments are not commanding a feeling. It's clear throughout the Old Testament that to love means to act loyally, to fulfill the commitments of the covenant. It is the same in the New Testament, except Jesus is the fulfillment of the covenant. We are simply asked to be loyal, to participate in the work of bringing the kingdom near through honorable, obedient action towards God, and grace makes up for the rest. And on the topic of loving one's neighbor, I wanna also clear something up. I'm no lawyer, but I think the semantics matter. You may have heard this second greatest commandment, love your neighbor as yourself, also called the golden rule. Do to others as you would have them do to you. And this is true, but it only holds true if the action, if the love, is self-sacrificing. I think we've all seen this, where the emphasis gets put on what I would want myself instead of what it means to really love someone else, to treat them with love. 
without practicing selflessness, treating others as I would want to be treated, to some extent just puts my needs and wants first, projects them on someone else, erasing their story, context, and needs. It's better than treating people terribly, sure, but if I am projecting my needs on someone else to determine how I treat them, I may be kind, but I will be blind to what they really need. I will not see them clearly. Jesus calls us to love our neighbors as ourselves, to put ourselves in the shoes of our neighbor and really see them, to listen as we would want to be listened to, to respect as we would want to be respected, to understand as we would want to be understood, to lean into the self-sacrificing love that Jesus demonstrates and calls us to. So assuming that the lawyer gets all of this, Jesus answers him, correct, love God, love your neighbor, do this and you will live. This reads as an affirmation of what the lawyer says and also a bit of a dismissal, debate over. But apparently, for the lawyer, the second part of that commandment, the loving your neighbor part, is still up for debate because he pushes on he calls Jesus back and says, well, who is my neighbor? Interestingly, the text says that he, he does this to justify himself. And I think he's looking for an easy out. I think he does understand on some level that covenantal love of God and neighbor requires humility and sacrifice, and I don't think he wants that. That kind of love does not factor into his perspective of the world. Because implied in his question, who is my neighbor, is the question, who is not my neighbor? Who do I have to love? And who do I not have to love? And Jesus, in true form, responds with a sideways answer and replies with a parable that explains how to be a neighbor not who to be a neighbor to. He gives no details about the man who needs a neighbor, only that he has been robbed and left for dead. This man could be anyone, an Israelite, a Samaritan, someone else. The road between Jericho and Jerusalem was fairly well trafficked. The region was dominated by Israel, but was a veritable melting pot of cultures and faiths. All we know about this man is that he could be anyone, but he still deserves the love and care and help from a neighbor. The priest and Levite, however, see him and pass him by deliberately. The road to Jericho, though busy, was also quite dangerous. The landscape is hilly and the road is windy, lots of places for bandits to hide and ambush travelers. It may not have been all that uncommon to see the aftermath of a robbery on that road, and likely it was safer to ignore it. The priest was probably returning home from service in the temple in Jerusalem, as was the Levite 
who was probably entrusted with minor duties in the temple too. Interesting side note, lawyer in the ancient world is essentially synonymous with scribe. They were the ones who handled all legal transactions and documents. And oftentimes, the scribes came from the, tri the tribe of Levi, the tribe of religious leaders, because law in that day was tied up with religion. And I think this is particularly clever of Jesus in trying to get the lawyer to put himself for once in someone else's shoes. Jesus gives him a character to be in the story, someone that he automatically relates to. And in the context of the parable, he regrets relating to the Levite. In the parable, the Levite and the priest answered the question, who is my neighbor with not that man? And Martin Luther King Jr. has a beautiful insight into this story. He suggests that one reason for the religious leaders' failure to act was their fear of harm, their fear for themselves. As if they said to themselves, if I stop to help this man, what, what will become of me? He goes on to suggest that the Good Samaritan was able to help because he reversed the question. If I do not stop to help, what will happen to this man? So quick background on Samaritans. They were once part of Israel, once upon a time. Samaria was originally the capital of the northern kingdom of Israel that fell to the Assyrians in 722 BC. Samaritan became a term for the people living between Judea and Galilee. They were regarded as a distinct ethnic and religious group. They were, at one point, part of Israel, descended from Israelites, but tensions had existed between Samaritans and Jews since the return of the Jews from exile in Babylon in 538 BC. Samaritans were kind of Torah observant, some similarities, but they were considered outsiders, people who would not necessarily be expected to show sympathy to Jews. But interestingly, up until the 16th century, Theologians and scholars didn't really mention Sumerian-Israelite hostility at all. That interpretation that is so common today didn't show up. That interpretation was popularized much later during the Reformation, and it was used then as a critique against the clergy. And I could go into this more, but I'm seeing some eyes gla glaze over, so history buffs, we can meet afterwards and go over the rest if you're interested. To sum up, Samaritans may have been less other than modern interpretations make them out to be. There was definitely tension, and it's implied in the passage itself that it's surprising that the Samaritans stopped and helped. But Samaritans and Israelites were actually neighbors, and for the most part, they coexisted. Which brings up a question for us. How do we love the people in our everyday lives people whose wounds and needs we might be desensitized to, because it's just normal at this point. How do we get past our fears for our own safety or comfort to help? And the text gives us an answer in the action of the Samaritan. He comes near the wounded man. 
And when he sees him, he is moved with pity. He pours oil and wine on the wounds, oil as a protective ointment of sorts, and wine as an antiseptic, using up his own resources in service to another. He brings the man to an inn, and he promises to come back. It's not a one and done, one good act and done. He sacrifices time, money, convenience, and travel independence for this man. He willingly wraps up his life with the life of a stranger in need. So what do we do? We start, I think, by asking God to heal our blindness, our desensitization. We draw near, we see with eyes of compassion, and we act accordingly. To answer the lawyer's first question in a bit of a different way, what must we do to inherit eternal life? We must care for more than our own lives. So is this parable just telling us to be more like the Samaritan, to love harder, do more, pay better attention to the people around us? In part, yes. We do have work to do as citizens of the kingdom of God. But the doing, the work, is completely meaningless and empty without the why. I think there's another way to see ourselves in this parable. There's another side to this. And I'd like to introduce it with a quick story about another debate, this time uh, one that happened to me. Uh, As many of you know, I work as a chaplain in a hospital. A couple of days ago, I was working a late shift and I got talking with one of the doctors in one of the ICUs. We were both on call, nothing was happening, we were bored, got into a conversation. Very fun and lively, but it was a debate about the value of religion and if God exists. Light topic. (laughs) Obviously. I believe God exists and that religion, faith, is necessary to understand the world and our place in it. Spoiler alert, he disagreed. But we talked through a number of different things around these questions. Evolutionary differences between humans and animals, biological versus spiritual roots of a moral compass, if doing good is simply a survival mechanism or if it speaks to some existential divine demand on our consciousness. You get the idea, it was a very long and complicated conversation. Unfortunately, from a scientific perspective, my stance is pretty hard to prove. While I think science reveals a lot about God and God's creation, truly understanding God's existence and movement in the world requires faith. But arguing from a faith perspective doesn't really hold a lot of water for this doctor, because he believes it's nonsense. So the debate from the beginning is rigged against me, of course, and I'm beginning to run out of things to say. So I take a page out of Jesus's book and just start asking questions. And we come to a part of the conversation where he states that people are just more evolved animals, fundamentally instinctually selfish, uh, and that our intellect paired with our survival instincts makes us monsters a lot of the time. Pretty bleak, right? 
So I sat there and thought about it for a minute, and then I asked him, so why then are you a doctor? Why did you decide you wanted to take care of people if humans are just monsters at the core? He blustered a bit and sidestepped and ended up changing the subject, and the debate carried on. <laughs> But I found it interesting that he didn't have an answer to that question. And I think it's because he doesn't have the framework to see people clearly. He sees something and he doesn't know how to explain it because love, love of God and neighbor, is absent from his perspective of the world. In the framework of love, we are not monsters. We are wounded. We are wounded by sin. We have forgotten how to love well. We have become selfish in our fight to survive in a world that is broken but we are not unredeemable. This is the other side of the parable. We are to see ourselves reflected in the wounded person left to die. We are the neighbor that Jesus comes to help. And this is actually how the church, the early church, interpreted the parable. Quoting from Origen, one of the early Christian theologians, The parable means this. The man who is going down to Jericho is us, human. Jerusalem is paradise, Jericho is the world. The robbers are hostile powers. The priest is the law, the Levite is the prophets, and the Samaritan is Christ. The wounds are caused by sin and our disobedience. The inn, which accepts all who wish to enter, is the church. And the fact that the Samaritan promises he will return represents the Savior's second coming. We are the neighbor that Jesus comes to help. We are that wounded person that Jesus draws near to and says, my brother, my sister, my friend, you are made in the image of God. Let me help you. Let me restore that image in you. He anoints us with oil and he binds up our wounds. He brings us to a safe place, saying, you can stay here, rest and heal. Learn to love as I have loved you. And don't worry, you're not alone here. Plenty of neighbors. And I'll be back soon. We are the neighbor that Jesus comes to help. And when we follow in Christ's footsteps and learn to love as we are loved, we become the neighbor that helps, extending that same compassion and care to our neighbors, seeing ourselves in them, seeing the image of God in them, seeing them clearly. And this morning we are at the inn, at the church, right? And as we gather here together, I'm reminded that we come from all sorts of different places. Maybe you are here and your wounds feel fresh and you need care. If that is you, I hope you take away at least this one truth. There is healing in the love of God and Jesus offers it to you.
Maybe you are here and you feel healed and you want to share the love that you have experienced. And if that is you, I hope you remember this, that the work of love, of being a neighbor, is seeing clearly and drawing near, just as our Lord did for us.